been a long time since I've had a long sermon. We're due. So settle in. Turn to your neighbor, give them permission that if they glance over and you're snoozing, they can give you a sharp elbow. We started, uh, gosh, I don't know when we did part one. But we're running for our life, aren't we? Literally. And uh, we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. I want you to read with me the first three verses. Therefore, that word points back to the 11th chapter. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all those people that we read about in chapter 11. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Powerful things in those three verses. We began several weeks ago in verse 1. We're going to still stay in verse 1 tonight. The key phrase that I want to talk to you about is let us throw off everything that hinders. Let us throw off everything that hinders. Who's in the race? Who's in the race? If you're in the race, lift your hand. If you're not in the race, don't lift your hand. Who's in the race to win? You stand. If you're in the race to win, you stand. Now, if you're not in the race to win, don't stand, obviously, right? Okay. You may be seated. How many know that many start the race well, but not all finish well? We're talking about being able to run the race, but not just run the race, but to also finish well. This is very, very important. And uh, if you're going to run a race, if you're going to, in the, in the race that is described in this particular passage, uh, it really is a marathon. It's an athletic contest uh, described from the Greek word agon, from which we get the English word agony. And if you've ever run a marathon, you understand that it is an agonizing race. But you don't enter the race if you don't intend on running to win. It doesn't make sense to enter a race if you don't enter to win it. Now, I know we live in a culture and a society where lots of people just enter just for the social event just to kind of trot along, to get a (laughs) t-shirt. There's many in the church who are just trotting along just so they can get a t-shirt. I am not joking. You know what I'm talking about. We're in this race to to win it. And if we're going to run this race to win it, we have to throw off the things, the extra weight, the extra baggage, the kinds of things that will hinder us from winning the race. If you're going to run a marathon, you don't run it with all sorts of football gear on, do you? You don't run it with shoulder pads. You don't run it with a helmet. You don't run it with with, uh, hip pads and thigh pads and big old heavy football shoes and cleats. If you're going to play basketball, if you're going to play, you you don't play basketball with all that heavy gear on. You don't run a, a race like that, or even a, even a sprint. You don't run a race and with, with all of the, your sweatsuit on, your warm-up jacket. You shed all that stuff, don't you, before you get in the race. Otherwise, you're going to be hindered from doing your very best. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. The Apostle Paul recounts in his testimony in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 24, 
talked about finishing the race and completing the task that the Lord had for him. And we also pray with Paul that we may finish the race and finish it well and finish the task that the Lord has for us. Don't we? Isn't that what we're, that's our whole goal of our life, isn't it? That's the whole goal of our life. And we want to finish well. I want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. So we run the race, and we run it to win, and we run hard. But as you know, we are, in fact, loaded down with various weights. We're loaded down. uh, The Greek word is encumbrances. We have encumbrances in our life. These are literally weights. They are things that slow us down, that hinder us in our race for home. And we're going to look at a number of those things that need shedding tonight. Now, typically, we will focus on the sin that so easily entangles. And we should focus on that, true? We want to be able to shed the sin that so easily entangles us because sin, in fact, will drag us down. Can you guys see me okay over here with this chair? This chair in the way? I want you to get the full impact. (laughs) See, because when I look over there, I see that chair in the way. All right. But even though every sin is a hindrance, not every hindrance is a sin. And we can grow complacent with these hindrances. Many times we, we don't even acknowledge them. We don't pay much attention to them because they aren't the sin. If we think only of our wrongdoing, we will be ignoring some of the most common hindrances of all. And there's a danger in ignoring these weights. There's a danger in ignoring these encumbrances. There's a danger in ignores, ignoring these things that hinder us. They may seem like a minor inconvenience, but if we ignore them, the great danger is that they will become occasions for sin. They will become occasions for sin. They will slow us down terrifically. Now, we can identify those things in our lives that though they may not be sinful, they still slow us down spiritually. And we can identify them by asking some very simple questions. And I've listed for you in your notes uh, some of those questions, and you get to fill in the blanks. Here's the first question. What do you fear most? What do you fear the most? That's a very important question to ask. Especially, what are you most afraid of losing? Fear is a tremendous hindrance, and afraid of losing, that is a tremendous hindrance in our life. Now, it's not a sin to be afraid, but fear can be paralyzing, can't it? Imagine, imagine, if you will, that the race you're running is cross-country. And imagine that the course takes you uh, through some desert terrain. Got the picture? And you've heard that in that desert terrain are snakes, and you are terrified of snakes. Now, how will your fear of snakes affect the race? Now, at best, at best, some of us will just be slowed down as we very carefully pick our way through watching for the what? Watching for the snakes because we don't want to get bit. But the fact that we're distracted by the snakes and we're slowed down the race, we are hindered, aren't we? That will happen to some. Some others will just actually be frozen and refuse to go any further in the race. I'm not going out there. I'm not going to run that race. There's snakes out there. They may even decide that the race isn't worth the danger and turn back altogether. Ask yourself this question. What are the snakes, quote unquote, what are the snakes that hold me back in this race? What are the snakes that hold me back in this race? 
What do you fear? What are you afraid of? Are you most afraid of death? Disease? Pain? Poverty? Crime? Loneliness? Rejection? Failure? Do you fear losing a loved one? A job? Your personal freedom? Maybe some particular possession? Does that about cover it? Most of us can find a fear in there someplace, can't we? A snake in there someplace. We're in this race. We're going across this terrain. And there's snakes out there. What am I afraid of? It's going to slow me down in the race. Answer this question honestly. It may take you a couple days to get to mini church to answer it. How do these fears keep you from doing God's will? How do these fears keep you from doing God's will? How does this, this encumbrance, how does this, this thing that weighs me down keep me from doing God's will? Maybe, if it's fear of rejection, maybe you're hindered from sharing your faith with non-Christians because of your fear of being rejected. All of us have, ex have experienced that to some degree in the past few weeks, haven't we? Some of us went out and, and invited anybody to the play. Most of us invited a lot of people, but there were some people that we didn't invite because what? We are afraid of what they would think or say, fear of rejection. We were hindered. Fear of failure. That's a common fear. That may keep us from launching out into some new area of ministry. I, I don't want to fail. I want to look bad. Fear of losing your personal freedom. That may make you avoid committing yourself to other people. I don't want to spend the time. I know it's going to, it's going to take a lot of my time, a lot of my effort, so I'm going to, I don't want to lose any of my personal freedom. There are no simple cures for fear. There are no simple cures for fear. We can't just sprinkle some magic whiffum poop dust over you and say, be not afraid. There's no simple cures for fear, especially for the fears that we feel most deeply. But I want to suggest to you there is a beginning. You can experience the beginning of a cure. And the beginning of a cure is to remember that in an ultimate sense, if we fear God rightly, we don't have to fear anyone or anything else. If we fear God rightly. Listen to what the scriptures say. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to what? Fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Does it? Does that kind of put things in, in perspective? Who should we fear? God. We should fear him rightly, shouldn't we? And when you fear God rightly, beloved, the more we love him, the more we rightly fear him, the more we realize that the very worst thing that could happen would be to let something come between him and us. That's the worst thing that could happen. To let something turn us back from our journey home to live with him forever. When you have that perspective, when you love him that much, you are not going to let anything or anyone get between you and get between him in that journey to get home to be with him forever. Nothing's going to hold me back when you love him and fear him rightly. You see, all the things that we fear, other than God himself, will in fact one day pass away, won't they? Everything is going to pass away that we fear. Disease, is that going to pass away? Poverty going to pass away? How about loneliness? Is that going to pass away? How about pain? Yeah. How about death itself? All of those things. Death itself 
All of that, they're all going to be swallowed up in what? In eternal life. See, it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? What am I afraid of? Couch that fear in a greater perspective as you grow in the love of God, in the fear of God, you'll find that your fear of these things begins to diminish more and more and more. That's the cure, if you will. Beloved, all the terrors that today seem so paralyzing, so frightful, will vanish just like smoke. Just like smoke. Psalm 27, verse 1. says, The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Who's the stronghold of my life? The Lord. What is He in my life? A stronghold. He's my stronghold. He's my refuge. He's the place I run to. Of whom shall I be afraid? These aren't just empty words. These are the sentiments of a man who learned to seek God with constant threats against his life. He was not afraid. He knew he could trust God. Beloved, let's, let's throw off this hindrance of being afraid of life. And let's take those fears and let's bring them subservient to our love and fear of God. Second question. What angers you the most and the most often? What angers you the most and the most often? I can see some people nudging each other. We struck a chord. Now, like fear, anger isn't necessarily sinful in itself. How many knew that? Anger in and of itself isn't necessarily sinful. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he says, In your anger, do not sin. There is such a thing as a righteous anger or a righteous indignation. Jesus exhibited it, didn't he? All right. But, as Christians in the early church believed, anger is the irritant of the soul. Anger, write that down. Anger is the irritant of the soul. Anger is like a speck of dirt that gets into our spiritual eyes. It blurs our vision of God. It blurs our vision of others. It blurs our vision of ourselves. And it blurs our vision of our circumstances. That's what anger can do. And at the same time, the object of our anger tends to fill our field of vision and monopolize our intention. Have you ever noticed that? The object of your anger just monopolizes all your attention. You see, the more we allow sources of offense to preoccupy us, the less time and the less emotional energy we have to expend on running the race. Is it important to throw off this stuff? To get rid of it as soon as we can? Beloved, if we tend to get angry easily and frequently, we're like a runner kicking sand into his or her own face. We're only doing ourselves a disservice. People say, well, I have a terrible temper. Control it! <laughs> get it under control! That's nothing to be proud of! People brag about their temper. You're a fool if you brag about your temper. You can bring it under control. The solution, the solution for anger, frequent anger, the solution for anger, beloved, we must learn to forgive quickly. Forgive what? Quickly and move on with the race. Forgive quickly. That means keep your accounts short. You know what happens when you, when you let your bills go 30 days, 60 days, 90 days? They start accruing interest, don't they? Anger's like that. It builds up, builds up. It sours. It becomes unrighteous. You give the devil a foothold in your life. And immediately in the race, you're dead. You stopped. Third question. What are your ambitions? What are your ambitions? 
what motivates your pursuit of those ambitions. What are you ambitious for? And what motivates you towards those ambitions? What great objectives have you set out to accomplish and why? When I have opportunity to get in a conversation with men, I'll ask them this question somewhere along. I'll try to steer the conversation so I can get to this point, and I'll ask them, may I ask you a personal question? Inevitably, they say, well, sure, what is it? Because presumably by this time I've gained some measure of trust. And I'll ask them, what are you living your life for? Most people aren't even thinking about that. Do you know that? Most people are not even thinking about that. What great objectives have you set out to accomplish, and why? What are you living your life for? What are you ambitious for? Ambitions can be holy, and they can be unholy, can't they? It's all according to our motives. But even a goal that's legitimate in itself, I want to suggest to you, may get us off course if we haven't examined it in the light of our final destination in God. The term ambition, it comes from a root Latin word that meant to walk around. Have you heard the word ambulate? Same, same root word. Ambition comes from that root Latin word. Interestingly, it originally referred to politicians who wandered among the people soliciting votes to advance their own agendas for accumulating power and prestige. Does that sound vaguely familiar? (laughs) Ambition. Ambition. Beloved, if our big goals in life don't advance us, if our big goals in life do not advance us toward the ultimate goal of winning the race, then we too will be walking around forgetting the course and forsaking an eternal crown to desperately work for a mere perishable crown. What a waste of a life. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. Everyone, Paul says, who competes in the games goes into what kind of training? Strict training. Does that imply throwing off encumbrances and weights? Goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will what? Last forever. So are you in the, are you in the race just to get people's adulation? Are you in the race just to accumulate wealth? Are you in the race to accumulate uh, prestige and power in this life? What are you ambitious for? We want to be ambitious for the kingdom, right? Beloved, our goals need to advance the kingdom of God. We want to run that race. Here's the fourth question. What gets gets the most of your time, energy, and attention? What is it that gets the most of your time, energy, and attention? Second question, is it worth it? (laughs) Now, at the time, it may seem like it, huh? (laughs) How many times have we invested ourselves in something that really wasn't worth it? We thought it was worth it, but in retrospect, we say, why did I waste my time? It wasn't worth it. Now, we don't always admit it, but there are limits to what we can accomplish. Is that true? We don't always admit it, but there are limits to what we can accomplish. That means, therefore, that we have to practice a kind of spiritual reprioritizing. This should go on in our life fairly regularly. We look at our life, we evaluate, and there's always a season where we need to spiritually reprioritize. We want to invest ourselves in those concerns that are genuinely the most important, rather than in all the other daily matters, that scream out for our attention. When I was in the Amway business, I'll never forget this. I talked to a guy. I was was, was in the Amway business for two months. 
I'd talked to 30 people already, and 30 people told me no. Some of them real vehemently. They didn't want my soap. They didn't want my business. They didn't want to see me stir the circle. They didn't do anything. So I went to this guy named Dave Kendall. I'll never forget this. I went to one of these seminars. It was called a moving up seminar. You get, you get motivated and pumped up. And I said, Dave, Dave, you've got to tell me, man. I talked to 30 people. No one wants to get in this business. He looked at me. He just knew. He just, he just knew. He said, you come talk to me when 100 people tell you no. I said, what am I supposed to do? He said, there's only two things you do. I said, two things? That's it? That's it? What are the two things? Give me the two secrets. He said, sell and sponsor, sell and sponsor, sell and sponsor, sell and sponsor. And you know what? That's all I ever did from then on. Sold and sponsored, sold and sponsored. Yeah, but you've got to stock the shelves. You've got to do that. You gotta... No, you hire the rest of that stuff. Somebody else does it. You do the thing. What does a pastor do? Self sponsor. <laughs> I talked to one of my pastors. I talked to one of my pastors in one of the churches that I that I that I serve outside of this church, this in my division this week. I went and spent a morning with him uh, this week and he's just overwhelmed. He's burdened. He's it's just out of control. He 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 can't he doesn't know what to do and the finances are crashing in on him and and the, the landlord's calling for the rent. He doesn't have the rent, and, and he's spread so thin. I said, you're doing all this stuff. I said, what's the word say? What are you supposed to do? And he looked at me. He, did, he didn't know what he was supposed to do. He thought he was supposed to do it all. I said, you do two things and two things only. No. <laughs> What are they, Bill? Pray and the Word. You pray and preach. You pray and preach. That's all you do. I mean, I understand the tension in my own life. I had all sorts of people call me, will you counsel us, Pastor? Will you count? Will you spend time? Will you do this? Will you do? And it just, it just eats away at my time to pray and to preach, to pray and to study the Word. You want me to study the Word, don't you? You want me to pray, don't you? Because if I'm not praying, if I'm not studying the Word... We're not going to have much fun on Friday night. <laughs> Sell and sponsor. You guys crack me up. Man. <laughs> you know, in the, midst, in the midst of so much busyness, we have to set priorities. We have to set priorities and we have to focus on the steps of the race ahead rather than fussing so much uh, without, with, with, with how spotless our shoes are or if we have the right color running shorts. We tend to focus on the non-essentials. Doesn't matter if your shoes are dirty. Doesn't matter if your top and your shorts don't match. Run the race. Do the things that are essential. So many people are just waiting, so, spending so much time just to look pretty. <laughs> Wasting time. There's two questions you can ask yourself. Good exercise to end each day with. Here's how you should end each day. If you're serious about using your time, energy, and attention for only those things that are essential, here's how you do it. As you lay your head down on your pillow, you review the day, and you say to yourself, what did I accomplish today that was genuinely important in the big picture of things. What did I accomplish today that was genuinely important in the big picture of things? And the second question you want to ask yourself is what didn't get done that truly needed to get done and what got in the way of getting it done. They'll leave it up on the screen for you for a couple of minutes. I can't tell you, I can't tell you how, this, how important this is. I see some of you just, you're blowing it off. It's just going right over your head. You could care less. 
I'm telling you, these things are so critical for your life as a Christian if you're going to run that race and you're going to finish well. You want to hear the fifth question? Who wants to hear the fifth question? Here's the fifth question. What do you think, what do you think that you can't get along without? What do you think that you can't get along without? You know, we may pity and even despise we may pity or even despise the drunkard or the drug abuser or the pedophile or the obviously wicked, evil individual. But if, if the truth be known, we all have compulsions of some sort, don't we? Right? How jealously do we guard are certain little habits, these compulsions, that in some situations we fight and die over them. Fit to be tied. I met a guy who was fit to be tied because his morning paper was late. Or the coffee pot was empty. That's one of my pet peeves in the office. <laughs> How bent out of shape do you get if the television goes on the fritz? Or you can't find your favorite Bible. Or someone sits in your seat in church. Or worse yet, takes your parking place. <laughs> Question. Is life untidy at times? <laughs> yeah, life can get very untidy. So we, we, we depend upon a certain measure of familiarity, don't we? We depend on a certain measure of regularity to maintain some kind of order, some kind of structure in our world. We, but, but though we depend on those things, remember, we have to be flexible, don't we? We have to be flexible if, in fact, we are to persevere in this race. Because if you're not flexible, you're going to get blown right out of the race. Right out of the race. Our little dependencies, if you will, are actually crutches. Think of those little things as crutches. How can we run a race hobbling along on crutches. You say, but I need the crutch. I need the crutch. Aha. I want to tell you that God often surprises us in life. How many have discovered that? He often comes along and he unexpectedly fractures our comfortable routine. Anybody notice that? Why does he do that? I believe he does that to teach us to throw down the crutches so that we can run fast and free. He's saying to you, you don't need that crutch. I have set you free. And he comes along and he stirs things up and he interrupts our comfortable routine to teach us that. Look at what Isaiah says, Isaiah 42, verses 16 and 17. God says, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known along unfamiliar paths. I will guide them. This is the blind. He will guide them. He'll take them along unfamiliar paths. He says, I'll turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. So you've got a crutch, and God, God's going to kick the crutch out from underneath you. Guess what? He's still there. He's going to bring you through the race. Verse 17. He says, but those who trust in crutches, who say to crutches, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. They, does that sound like they're going to finish the race? No, not at all. Is God serious? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Question number six. Have we got to anybody yet? Question number six. What important issues, what important issues do you find unsettling? I'll explain to you what I mean by that. What important issues do you find unsettling? We can't run the race if we can't figure out the rules. Make sense? You can't run the race unless you know the rules, unless you know where we're going, how we're going, and so forth. So we want to ask, what perplexing questions about the Christian life are keeping us from moving on? There are, are going to be perplexing questions. I remember one time in my life, I had just this just huge, huge question. I couldn't resolve it. And it stopped me dead in my tracks. And it's a question students of the Bible, sooner or later, they run smack into and it is, how do I resolve the fact there's a sovereign God, and yet he still holds me accountable? Anybody run into that question yet? That's a big one. And I thought that every question had to be resolved. Do you know if there's some unresolvable ones here and now? Are you puzzled about certain doctrinal, moral, or social issues? Sure. Now, most of the times, we can push those questions, we can push those issues unresolved on the back burner. We can put them back here someplace, hoping that they will go away. But they don't go away. Every so often, however, they do go away, and they go away this way. They go away this way. That's good. We gain some new experience some new insight becomes clear and apparent to us that either answers or resolves that question that we had and makes now the question not quite so urgent or, or relevant. I had that same dilemma. I remember this over this one question. I was so desperate. I was so stopped in my walk, in my race, if you will, that I was about to quit. I couldn't resolve these issues. And I'll never forget this. I took my Bible, not this one, but my other Bible, my first Bible, and I went down to the ocean. And it was during the winter, and the wind was blowing. It was blustering. It was freezing cold. The waves were crashing. The sea spray. It was a great movie. <laughs> and I took my Bible, and I was about to throw it into the ocean because I couldn't resolve this thing. I was having a little temper tantrum. And I said, I, I couldn't say quit. I couldn't throw my Bible in the ocean. I couldn't quit. Because I said, I know too much. <laughs> I knew too much that made too much sense. I couldn't quit. So I resolved to put this issue that I couldn't resolve on the back burner, and I said, Lord, you're going to have to resolve it. And sure enough, it wasn't very long after that that he showed me how I could accept some resolution for that issue. And I was able to move on. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. But there are other times when these unresolved issues, though we push them onto the back burner, they are hidden from our immediate view. They do begin to quietly eat away at and unravel, if you will, our very life. And they do halt us. Questions like, my spouse had an affair and divorced me. Am I free to remarry? That's a huge question. That's a huge dilemma for a lot of people. And there's lots of differing opinions. It depends on what church and denomination you go to. We've always financially, we're always financially strapped. But we still tithe a full 10%. Are we giving too much? A lot of people have that dilemma, that question. 
I have nagging doubts about some of the teachings of my church. Should I look for another church? Question. These kind of questions hinder our spiritual progress, don't they? They hinder us in that race until we're able to identify them clearly and until we're able to address them. And beloved, not all questions, of course, will find a satisfactory resolution in this life. How many know that? There's some questions that just are not going to be resolved to our full, absolute satisfaction. We simply have to let such uncertainties press us to a deeper sense of our faith and our trust in the one who does ultimately hold all the answers. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. There are some things, you know, you say, say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I trust you. I, I know that I can only know in part in this life, but I know that I'm with you. When I finally see you face to face, things are going to come together. They'll fall in place. I'll understand. I'll know. You say, but are there some questions that, that, that can be resolved? Yes. There's lots of questions that can be resolved. And God means for them to be resolved. But it requires that we exercise the three classic Christian disciplines of wisdom. And they have to all be exercised simultaneously. The first one is prayer. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should what? Ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. It will be given him. So asking God is nothing more than prayer. Lord, I need wisdom in this subject. But now you just can't just ask for wisdom and then expect me to pour it into your head. You've got to use the second discipline, and that is Bible study. Bible study. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you what? Wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So you study the Scriptures. You ask for wisdom. As you study the Scriptures, God begins to unfold and give you insight and wisdom into life and His purposes. And the last of those three disciplines is godly counsel. What kind of counsel? Godly counsel. Don't just ask anybody. I talk to people who are Christians who've been Christians far too long, and they're just asking anybody, what do you think I should do? You go to God, you go to His Word, and you go to godly counselors. Men and women who've walked with God and have demonstrated in their life the fruit of a walk with Him. You don't just ask anybody. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. But you want godly advisors. You want godly counsel. There's several Proverbs that talk about seeking counsel, and I would suggest to you that you seek it from godly people. Seventh question. What part of your past do you need to release? What part of your past do you need to release? Beloved, we can never run a race if we're always retracing our steps. How many have discovered that? You've got you to let go of your past. Can't keep rehearsing it. Can't keep rehearsing it. Can't keep rehearsing it. It stops you dead in the, in, the, in, the, in the race. That's one of those snakes that looms up and just grabs a hold of you. What's haunting you from, from your past? What's distracting you? What's weighing you down from your past? What ghosts out of your past? What memories out of your past? plagued you? Are there memories of an abusive childhood? Are there memories of a broken relationship? Maybe memories of serious sins or, or unwise choices whose consequences can never be undone. You just can't do anything about it. 
sometimes we carry that stuff, we carry that stuff, we carry that stuff, and there's nothing we can do about it. We say, if only I had, if only he had, if only she had. And we compulse about our past and these things that we can do nothing about. Thoughts of bitterness and, re and regret literally can crisscross our minds, if you will, with uh, like steel cobwebs just hold us in its grip. We just keep regretting it. We just keep grieving over it. We're trapped. They trip us up, and they keep us from moving on. We've got to cut through those cobwebs. We've got to cut through those memories. We've got to cut through those regrets, beloved, with forgiveness. Forgiveness. First, by accepting God's forgiveness of us. God, you have forgiven me in Christ. You have forgiven me. Quit whipping yourself. Quit beating yourself up. Quit sucking your thumb. God, you have forgiven me. And then next, we need to forgive others. We need to release those. We need to forgive people. Nothing you can do now. Forgive them. As long as you hold on to those memories and those bitternesses and you will not forgive, it's just going to just eat you up more and more and more. You say, it's not that easy to forgive. I know. But start. Just forgive. Yeah, but what do I do when all those, all those feelings come up again? You stop yourself. You remind yourself that you forgave. <laughs> well, that's right. I forgave them. <laughs> down the road it happens again it rises up you, you start feeling oh no 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 i forgave him down the road oh no no i forgave him you rehearse the forgiveness and guess what those things will become more and more and more and more and more extinct in your life you begin to know the freedom that jesus purchased for you so we start with forgiveness and we're fortified by faith in God, the God who says, who Paul writes about and says, God works all things together for your good, even the grievous things that have happened in the past you can do nothing about. You start with forgiveness, and then you're fortified with a faith in God who can work all things together for your good. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. And then as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, he says, then we must put off the old self and put on the new self. This is a process, beloved. Put off the old self and put on the new self. Paul, a great example. Paul himself came to Christ, I want to suggest to you, with a whole boatload of memories. I mean, a whole raft full of memories of shameful past still vivid in his mind. Think about it. The cries of tortured Christians suffering on account of his self-righteous zeal. And he comes to Christ with all those memories still vivid in his mind. And yet through God's mercy, Paul was able to find peace in a holy forgetfulness. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, look at these verses. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Grievous past! But guess what? He's been forgiven. He embraces that forgiveness. He puts off the old Paul, puts on the new Paul, and he, in a holy forgetfulness, strains forward to win that prize. He's running that race, throwing off the things that encumber him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lastly, beloved, do you think, do you think that you're the kind of person who can finish the race? Do you think you're the kind of person that can finish the race? 
In the Old Testament, the book of Numbers in chapter 13, we recall that Moses sent 12 men out to spy the land of Canaan as part of Israel's preparations for possessing the promised land. Remember that? And when those 12 men returned, they reported indeed that the land was abundant and that indeed, as God had said, was flowing with milk and honey. It was a wonderful land. But the people nevertheless refused to enter the land of Canaan because the spies also reported that its inhabitants were bigger and stronger than the Israelites. They concluded, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Question. Could the Israelites have succeeded in their God-given mission to possess the land of Canaan? Yes, they could have. Despite their size, who was with them? God was with them, and God would not fail in his purpose. Right? Where was the problem? They were the problem, the Israelites. The real problem was in their perception of themselves. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Their perception of themselves. Beloved, as long as they saw themselves as bugs instead of God's warriors, they would lack the confidence that he would see them through to victory. Who would see them through? He would see them through to victory. How can we possibly, think about this, how can we possibly hope to run the race if we focus and keep the focus on our own inadequacies, if we keep the focus and see ourselves only as losers? How can we possibly run the race to the finish and run it well? Once again, I call your attention to the Apostle Paul. He serves as our example after having told the Philippians that he would press on toward the goal of Christ. He adds in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It matters not the obstacle. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Even though Paul at times certainly must have felt like a grasshopper himself, he knew he wasn't serving a grasshopper God. He was serving a great God. Beloved, beloved, when when we are tempted to let a sense of our own failings or our own inadequacy drain us of our hope, we need to remember that Christ in us, Christ in us is the hope of glory. Christ in us is the hope of glory. He, He is our reason to have confidence that the race can be finished. He is. Now in all these ways, as we pursue the Lord, as we run this race, we certainly encounter hindrances. Hindrances that aren't sins, necessarily. But they can still hold us back all the same. Would you agree that all these things, as we've identified through these questions, are these hindrances that can hold us back in this race? Yes. But one very, very important reason that we've got to bring these things to light, we can't just ignore them, we've got to deal with them, is that they can easily become occasions for sin. Very easily. Fear of rejection. Fear of rejection, for example, not wrong in itself necessarily, but if we don't overcome it, it can tempt us to disobey God for the sake of what? Pleasing other people. For the sake of following the peer group. For the sake of following the crowd. Be accepted by our peers. We can succumb to that temptation, can't we? Confusion. Confusion over doctrinal issues. Confusion over moral issues. Isn't necessarily sin. 
But willful ignorance in such matters certainly will lead to sin. Absolutely. And even righteous anger can sour, can't it? And it can become unrighteous through our failure to forgive. Be angry, but don't sin. See, we've got to watch these things. We've got to know that there are weights, there are hindrances. They're in every life, but we throw them off. We throw them off. And when we throw off everything that hinders, we're also avoiding some of the sin that so easily entangles us. So I want to encourage you. We've got a race to run, amen? We've got a race to run. And whatever it is that holds us back, whatever it is that hinders us, whatever weight there is, get rid of it. Get rid of it if you hope to finish well. Amen? Now, one last thing. I've given you a lot of stuff tonight, haven't I? You've been very patient. I haven't seen one of you fall asleep. Though you were tempted, I know. Hearing this one time is not going to make any difference in your life. Do you know that? You're going to go out of here, and in less than a day, you're going to forget what I said. So I'm going to suggest that you get the tape. I think this is so important a message that you get the tape, you listen to it over and over and over. You're going to hear things that you're going to say to yourself, did he say that? He must have, because it's on the tape. <laughs> I threw so much at you tonight that you couldn't possibly assimilate it. Now, there's people in our congregation who regularly, every single week, get the tape. Every single week they get the tape, they listen to it over and over and over, and their lives are being dramatically changed. Now, what's the second thing I th I'm going to suggest you do? I'm going to suggest you go to mini church. Because you can't throw off these hindrances all by yourself. You need help. You need help. So you get the tape. Listen to it. Listen to it. Listen to it. And then go to mini church. And you tell people, I'm, I'm dealing with these hindrances. I'm, this is the thing. I've got to throw this thing off. Help me. Hold me accountable. And you'll find some help. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. And I praise you that you are a mighty God and that, Lord, you don't leave us to our own devices. You promise to strengthen us, give us courage. But, Lord, it's always in the context of a relationship with you and a relationship with your church. Lord, we know that there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We know, Father, that we have to rehearse over and over and over the truth of your word. Lord, you say the same things over and over and over and over from the front page to the last page. I pray that we would be people who would, who would just absorb these things, Lord, and that we would, in fact, run this race with great endurance and that we would see, recognize those things that are hindrances, those things that are weights, those things that slow us down, and we would just heave, give them the old heave-ho, God. so that we could run faster and freer and lighter, unhindered. Lord, we, want, we just want to finish well. We look to you tonight, and we give you thanks for your abundant provisions. We love you, Lord. Keep your heads bowed for just one more minute. There may be some people here in the room tonight that You're not even in the race yet. Maybe you thought you were. Maybe you don't even really know why you're living your life. Maybe you have no real substantial goals. Maybe if I sat down and asked you, what do you live in your life for? You really couldn't tell me anything substantial. But God wants you to live it for eternity. Eternity with him. But you can only do that as a Christian. Not all roads lead to heaven. 
There's only one way. Jesus says it himself. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man can come to the Father but through me. If you're here tonight and you don't really know God, maybe you know about him. Maybe you don't really think that he cares about you, that you matter to him. Jesus came here on this earth. Jesus was God in the flesh. Not only to tell us, but to demonstrate to us that we matter tremendously to God. He died for us. He paid for our sins. He paid the admission price for heaven. That's why it's Jesus and Jesus only. Nobody else, no other guru, no other religious teacher, no other religious leader paid the admission price to heaven. Only Jesus. God said that he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Now, if you're here tonight and you don't know God, you don't know Jesus Christ, but you want everlasting life, you want to know that if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven. Then you put your faith in Jesus because he purchased the ticket for you. And I want to pray in just a minute. I want to pray a prayer with, with anybody who would want to commit their life to Christ. And I don't want to just pray by myself, but I do want to know if there are people who want to pray. You want to give your life to Jesus Christ. You don't have to know all the theology. You don't have to know all the Bible. You just have to know, one, that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short. Two, that Jesus is the only way, and you're ready to make a decision for him. You're ready to, to give your life into his hands. If you're ready to make those decisions, and you want to pray this prayer with me, I'll lead you in the prayer from the front here. If that's your decision, then you just signal me just by raising your hand. And then we'll pray in a second. Is there anybody at all that wants to pray, receive Jesus? Just raise your hand. Anybody at all? Way in the back. Okay, God bless you. I see your hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? God speaking to anybody else tonight? There's some of you struggling with some real, real heavy, heavy weights, heavy encumbrances that you know you need to throw off that have hindered your walk. I'd like to pray with you too. You just raise your hand. Okay, if you raise your hand, just I want you to stand right now. Just stand with me. Let's lift our hands up to the Lord, just like little children reaching up to our Heavenly Father. Pray this prayer. God, help me. Forgive me for my foolishness, for my unbelief. Forgive me for all my sin. Lord, you've spoken clearly in my heart tonight. You've shown me that I need you. You've told me that Jesus is the only way, that I can only get into the race by believing in him, that he paid my ticket in. So I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that he was buried and rose after three days from the dead to bring new life. And I received that new life tonight by faith. I believe you make me a new creation. And all the old stuff passes away. And a whole new life begins tonight. And Lord, I know that I have baggage, I have encumbrances, I have weights in my life that will tend to slow me down. Show me those things. And Lord, give me courage to cast them off that I may run this race with great endurance, that I may run it fast and free so that one day I'll see you and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, I commit my life to you. 
I affirm that you are my Lord and my Savior. And I love you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What are you going to sing? Let's stand and let's sing one last song before we dismiss. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. No, not. No.